in, in today's world, we're all so busy, right? I don't, you know, we, we may not feel like we have time to sit down and listen to a story. Welcome to the Own Wisdom Podcast with Igor Grossman and Charles Cassidy. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research for the emergent field of wisdom science. We will discuss what it means for each of us and for the society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. So today we have a special episode uh, because it will go beyond the simple uh, processes in people's minds, uh, the emotions, their cognitions. We'll start to reach out broadly to how people uh, interact with each other and what kind of wisdom we can get from that. Uh, Charles, why don't you tell us a little bit more about why we decided to focus on this transmission of wisdom and what exactly we have in mind today? Well, Igor, I'm going to sort of I'm going to fire it back at you because it's kind of we're talking about stories today. We've got a working title episode, which I don't know if we've actually agreed on, but uh, the working title is Wisdom Transmission and Why We Tell Stories. So you kind of tend to think that stories are just, if you don't think about it very much, you think stories are about information exchange. You know, something happened to me and I pass it on to someone else. But if it doesn't take much digging or thinking about it to realize stories are not about just exchanging information. I mean, we're quite lucky we have a specialist in narratives with us today. So it's, it doesn't matter that we don't know what we're talking about because we have Nick Westray here. So Nick, hi, how are you doing? I'm really good. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. You're uh, actually part of history because this is my first ever podcast and I'm very excited. Ex- excellent i like that so i like how nick has already tied his personal narrative into the sort of common <laughs> shared narrative of history uh, that was a smooth move nick nice work <laughs> so uh, nick can you tell us uh, just a little bit about you what who you are what you what i mean not everything you know because that's going to take a whole that's going to take a whole series of podcasts but just kind of what you're what you're doing at the moment and where you're doing it and what you're focusing on for sure. Okay, so I get it. You don't want my life story. That's okay. Um, you just want the caption. And uh, and basically where I'm at, um, I'm a developmental psychologist. I'm working right now in the city of Klagenfurt in the south of Austria. I work as a postdoctoral research fellow with a researcher named Judith Gluck, um, oh, yeah. who is a wisdom researcher and also a narrative researcher. So I've been here since January doing my research, which is building upon the work that I was doing in Toronto, which is where I'm from and where I also received my PhD. Right. And you're, one of the big things you look at is narratives. And so before we kind of get a little bit more into that, are you a, a, like a raconteur at a dinner party? You always like, hey, guys, I got a story. Or do you not operate like that? Yeah, I mean, I guess I've never really thought of myself as being a storyteller. Um, but <laughs> absolutely, it's part of who I am. I mean, I, I see stories as being so ubiqu- ubiquitous to human mm. communication and life that I think in that sense, we're all storytellers. But I also know that I enjoy stories. I love hearing stories. And, and with that in mind, of course, I contribute to the telling of them as well. So definitely, this is a major mode of communication for me. Yeah. I mean, we, there's a lot to talk about. But just like on a kind of initial sort of first pass, what do you? what's your instinct about why we tell stories if it's not just about chatting it's not it's not just about information exchange it's not like an efficient transmission of information Mm -hmm. so what are kind of some of the things that seem to be pretty evident are really going on behind this process of telling stories why we're compelled to do it so much you have any any kind of thoughts about that yeah i mean i think there are multiple increasingly complex answers to that question and the first one at the at the sort of the base of it all is that we enjoy stories 
stories are entertaining. They make us laugh. Yeah. They make us cry. You know, they, they are, they're rife with emotion. They make us feel emotion. Um, so we, we enjoy the telling and that's what makes it a popular mode of communication. Right. Um, films, and gives for them example, staying like, power. Yeah. I don't, I don't read a lot of books. Yeah. I don't read a lot of fiction, but I love films. So I can't, you know, I don't think of myself as being into stories, but I, why am I watching all these films then? <laughs> their stories. Absolutely. Too, right? Yeah. A film is a story, yeah. 100%. Um, so I think um, why are films attractive, why are the stories in films attractive, why are stories we read attractive and the stories we tell, um, to answer that question on a slightly deeper level, I think that somehow the story form is innately appealing to people because unlike other you know, cognitive structures or ways of communicating, stories reflect human life. They, you know many people would argue that our lives are like stories. They have a beginning and middle and end. There are characters, mm. heroes and villains, mm. major conflicts. Hopefully there are happy endings. Mm. Even the smaller units of our life stories, memories, the episodes, the day-to-day events, those too are stories. So they, the stories have this uncanny resemblance to real life, mm. which makes sense in terms of why we use them and to convey our emotions, our goals, intentions, and, and things like that. Let me interrupt you here very quickly. I mean, there are two types of stories that seem uh, to be very prominent and quite different. And I just try to understand the difference here. One is the one that is often communicated in books and in uh, other fo- media forms, including films, uh, and those that are communicated um, between friends, uh, family members, and so on. And it seems to me that the qualities of those stories are fundamentally different. Quite often, uh, certainly if you look at Hollywood movies, uh, you see that there are these uh, specific scripts that uh, uh, most of the movies are following. And uh, that's right. Yeah. yeah, there's a genre, but there's also like, you know, there's a beginning, there's an end, there's this hero, uh, there is some kind of a redemption process that's going on. And that seems very different. Oh, that sounds not? like my life, pretty much. You know? Oh, yeah, that's like, are you the hero? Where are you right now? Are you on the peak or are you like currently yeah. Yeah, uh, saving the princess? Say, yeah. Are, yeah. Did you save the princess already? Pretty much. Did that this morning, yeah. Right. So, Nick, so my question there is, um, uh, do you see the resemblance between this uh, bigger picture stories that are told through uh, media, through uh, the mass media, uh, and uh, the stories that people tell their, in their everyday life? Or are these two different things? Uh, I don't think they're two different things. I mean, I think they have differences, definitely. But I think really things like movies and books, they're designed in a way to imitate life, right? This is art imitating life. They reflect um, aspects of the human psychology. So, I mean, I guess we'd have to sit and talk about what what level are the differences coming in at that you see? Is it differences in structure or emotional tone, differences in content? Certainly, the things we see in films don't don't resemble everyone's life because only certain stories get told in Hollywood. So I would think I would say that content-wise, the, the the content of films and, and these types of stories are familiar to most people, but absolutely not representative of everyone's life story. And that's that's a really interesting discussion topic actually to pursue when we think about what stories get airtime in our culture. Mm. And that's kind of we'll get into that, won't we? Because you know there yeah. that's something that's perhaps slowly changing in Hollywood. People are sort of saying we, we're getting the same stories over and over from the same groups and yeah. we're missing out on such a such a, a 
rich array of stories that have never been told. And that seems to be, I don't know, my friends, people I speak to, that's something people are becoming more aware of. Like, we're getting a sliver of, of humanity in our stories, and it feels like there might be a time for it opening up a little bit. But um, that's a, it's a big topic. <laughs> yeah. So let's kind of um, get stuck into some technical terms then. I don't know, Igor, you should probably run with this because it gets a little technical here around narratives and self-narrative. So I'm going to just step out of the moment and let you sort of um, dive into the next bit with Nick about, about, about how this is kind of studied in the lab. Right. Well, I mean, before we go into the lab, I think uh, one really interesting thing for our listeners is to think about this idea of narratives that are often communicated on a collective level. So, because what's fascinating is not just the stories that are that we read in books or uh, movies, as well as those that we have uh, at the kitchen table in the family, but there are also these narratives that are told us throughout society, depending on the group that you belong to. And so one uh, particular narrative that I want to start with is the narrative of the Holocaust survivors. And there are all sorts of narratives that, of course, uh, exist on this topic. Uh, but here's one that is on a plaque at a museum in the United States. It's about a ship uh, that sailed from uh, Europe full of refugees in 1939 to escape uh, the Nazi Germany. And here's what the plaque is saying. Sailing close to the Florida shore, passengers could see the lights of Miami. United States Coast Guard ships patrolling the waters ensured that no one jumped to freedom. The German captain, Gustav Schröder, appealed in vain to the United States for permission to dock. The St. Louis, the name of the ship, headed back to Europe. Belgium, the Netherlands, Britain and France each accepted refugees, but hundreds of them were killed later during the Holocaust. Now, this is the narrative of the escape or an attempt to escape by uh, a large group of refugees, uh, Jewish refugees from Europe uh, in 1939. And what I want to say first is that there is no really right or wrong, because actually, from the perspective in 1939, there's a lot of ambiguity about what could have been done. And it's not like that the United States just rejected them. In fact, it was much more political, and they also didn't know that those countries would later, would later be occupied uh, by Nazi Germany at that right. time. So that wasn't known at the time. That's right. That's right. So the, this uh, this is not. But but nevertheless, uh, then in the Holocaust Museum, I think it's, this is in Washington D.C. Um, the interpretation of this incident is presented in a particular way. And so I would like to know, Nick, what do you think is the meaning of this narrative, and how? Are narratives like this used to reinforce certain collective identities and certain interpretations for groups? Okay. Um, I mean, this is a really interesting example of a story that means different things to different people. Right. Um, but let's, let's, let's back up a little bit and talk a little bit about some of, there's something at the heart of what you're talking about right now, and that is the truthfulness or the veracity or the accuracy of a story. And when, when I think about my work in, in studying life stories and personal narratives, autobiographical memory, I'm not interested as a researcher in historical truth. Mm. And you brought in some points talking about the ambiguities that, that were happening at the time that that ship sailed. And, and it's neither here nor there whether or not Americans or Cubans that knew what was happening in Nazi 
Germany at that time. So what matters is not then the historical truth, but what some narrative researchers call narrative truth. Narrative truth is an interpretation mm -hmm. of historical truth. And, and it's an interpretation that gives people a sense of meaning. It helps them to understand their lived experience. It helps them to make sense of it. It also helps them to transmit their understanding of it to other people. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when we talk about this story in particular, about the MS St. Louis ocean liner, this has meant, of course, different things to different people. But what happens in these stories that Holocaust survivors tell about the ship is that it often becomes an occasion to talk about American inaction, mm -hmm. a lack of concern for human suffering, a feeling or sense of abandonment at the hands of America. And people who, um, I mean, of course, this story has has come up with in the context of research, uh, specifically by a researcher named Brian Schiff and his colleagues. And this story is often told with the idea in mind that um, the Holocaust survivor is transmitting a piece of wisdom to a younger listener so that this mistake isn't repeated again. So even though I say that these, these stories mean different things to different people, one of the themes that this researcher has observed is that this particular story is commonly used in that way. So basically, there is a communication, there's a message to the next generation about what to do and what not to do, not to be inactive, not to be just like uh, sit there and wait until something unfolds in this other country, but instead of that, actually engage. And this is sort of a warning, right? Precisely. Um, and yeah. and um, along the same lines of each person having their own sort of uh, meaning connected to this story, an institution like a Holocaust museum has its own meaning as well, or understanding of it as well. And I think a lot of people have criticized the monuments and, and other institutionalized institutionalizations of these stories as being, say, for in this case, Americanized. There's a particular story that that institution wants to tell and wants to be heard surrounding their involvement in an otherwise really horrific episode in our history. Right. So, so we do tell our stories in, in ways that attempt to achieve goals that we have in our sort of speaker-listener exchange. So, so what does that mean for how we should treat stories? Because they're obviously valuable, but if it's not about facts, passing on facts, do we treat them, do it, are they a different kind of thing? So you're getting something, you're getting some sort of life lesson that someone wants to express from, from a previous generation or someone who's been in different experience, but you're not getting data, you're getting an interpretation. And there's a valuable lesson in there, perhaps, but it means we have to be careful, perhaps, what we take from stories. I think that everyone needs to be a critical consumer of the stories that they hear. Certainly, stories can be used to transmit facts. Um, but it's, it's actually funny that you use that word because other research that I've read has coined the term faction. faction. It's part fact, fact, part fiction. I really like that um, when we talk about it in terms of people's life stories. But, you know, they can be used to transmit facts, but that's not what's of great interest to me. I'm interested in how people spin those facts in ways that achieve some sort of a psychological end for themselves. What's so interesting about the story about the MS St. Louis ship is that most of the people who talk about it, of course, weren't even on the ship. And that's why Schiff and his colleagues have referred to this particular story as a collected story. Mm. It's a story that actually was outside of 
the people's direct experience. He's also called this a vicarious story that somehow gets appropriated by people and then internalized as their own. And now that internalization process, that is what interests me. How does it become internalized within one's sense of self? And what are the consequences psychologically of that internalization process? Does it provide a sense of integrity, unity, Mm. perhaps well-being, a sense of belongingness to a collective, and so on? So let's uh, turn to another story that uh, also tries to uh, capture this notion of collective uh, collective narrative uh, and motivate people. And this is the example that uh, until Nick, you forwarded to us, I actually was not much aware about because of my upbringing in Europe, I guess. And specifically, uh, now we turn the page and look at the uh, gay culture and civil rights movement of homosexuals in North America, uh, specifically with the story of the Stonewall riots. So can you tell us a little bit more about that and what is the meaning of this uh, story uh, for different gay communities? Because I found that part that you forwarded to us very interesting. I love to talk about this because this is something that I think about quite a bit. And it's interesting to be a researcher who's studying the impact of cultural historical events, because that is important in itself, but also to be a researcher who's personally affected by those events themselves. And I mean, full disclosure, I identify as a gay man. So I think a lot about my history and the heritage of the gay community. Mm -hmm. um, In the same way that young Jewish people, for example, might think about the Holocaust. Now, I'm not making a direct comparison, of course, between the Holocaust and the Stonewall in riots. But what I'm saying is that groups of people today, young people today, have histories that are um, textured Mm -hmm. by certain events that we may feel more or less connected to. So the Stonewall Inn story basically is the story of, in 1969, in New York City, there was an inn called the Stonewall Inn. and More of a pub, New- right? It was a pub, right? So it wasn't even, I think, operating with a proper liquor license or anything like that. But it was a meeting space for gay people because at that time, there were no public spaces for gay people to congregate and just to be social and feel connected to a community. And so this Stonewall Inn was emblematic of institutions across North America, of course, in L.A. and San Francisco, little watering holes for gay people. But what was happening in these spaces was that they were being raided by the police um, and they were being broken up on the basis of something like operating without a liquor license or maybe perhaps something more direct. And basically it was a form of, of gay persecution at the time. And what happened with Stonewall Inn and what makes it so unique is that it wasn't the first example of a police raid of a space like this, but it was the first example where um, the individuals in that establishment responded. And there was an example of a relatively violent riot against the police. And it's a riot that actually continued uh, over two days. So this, and and then that event began to be, viewed as, by some people, the beginning of the gay rights movement. But of course, it wasn't the beginning. It was just a very notable event early on that was commemorable. So what happened one year later was that to commemorate the the Stonewall Inn riots, uh, there was New York had its first Christopher Street Liberation Parade or Mm -hmm. Liberation Day. And that was um, the origin of the modern Pride Parade in North America. Yeah, I had I had no idea 
Because I'd heard of Stonewall and I'd obviously Mm -hmm. familiar with Gay Pride, but I didn't know Gay Pride was directly the sort of annual commemoration. Or that's where it began. I didn't know that it it started with Stonewall. Yeah, I think quite literally it did. And it's evolved over the years. And that is what is so interesting to me. What does a parade mean today? How many young gay people today who are participating in this parade understand that origin story? Would it matter if they understood the origin story? Have they sat down with gay people who were around at that time, who experienced a bathhouse raid or some other type of a police raid? That interaction is what I'm the most interested in. How could... yeah. Yeah, go ahead. And I was just uh, saying that uh, this is really interesting, this kind of this transmission uh, that happened both in the St. Louis uh, story and in the Stonewall in uh, Riot story and how it sort of uh, communicates certain wisdom, certain message to the next generation. What I'm wondering about, so Nick, you have done some work on that. I think you found that the meaning of this uh, of the struggles and of the messages that are communicated seem to vary from one decade to another, right? Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I find that really interesting, sort of this cultural change in the types of narratives that uh, people of different uh, generations uh, are communicating. In one study, we had, and this was actually the very first research study that I had ever conducted, Mm -hmm. and I had done it under the supervision of Kate McLean um, when I was doing my undergraduate studies. And this was such a cool experience because I was asking questions about gay identity development across generational cohorts of gay men at the same time as trying to figure out what my own gay identity looked like. (laughs) So this was super formative for me um, in my own development. But basically, we had this idea um, uh, along the lines of what we're talking about, that um, identities have different configurations across the uh, across generational cohorts. So if you came of age in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or then in the new millennium, you know, you have different material for identity making, essentially. Right. So we wanted to look at the differences in the ways that identities were configured, the content or the memories that were connected to those identities across groups of people according to generations. And what we found was really quite unsurprisingly that older cohorts had more clear cultural events that were connected to their identities. And younger people, of course, didn't have such events. Um, Younger people, when they were asked to talk about cultural events that were relevant to their identity, ended up talking about really personal experiences. And um, so what what you see is more heterogeneity in young young gay people's identities. Older gay people had their identities looked more similar to work, to one another. And for the most part, older gay people actually engaged in less meaning making. And that's a variable that we coded in people's memories. They had less meaning making, active processes of self-reflection and exploration within their memories. Younger people had more of that, and there, and there are a couple interpretations of that. So wait a second. So, that, so what? Yeah. Uh, just want to interrupt you. Could you, uh, if possible, quickly define for us what this uh, processes mean? And if not, maybe we can return to this later. Uh, but uh, if you, if it helps you, uh, could you uh, quickly define what meaning making and this uh, redemptive uh, process that you just talked about uh, uh, mean? What uh, what are uh, those terms referring to? So we didn't code redemptive processing in this particular oh, okay, data okay. set. 
um, so we can come back to it later. Right. But basically, the, the thing that we had scored in the narratives is this process, which we call meaning making. Yeah. And meaning making essentially is an indication of the extent to which an individual has reflected upon their experience and presented or transformed their experience into some sort of a lesson or insight. Uh, they have deeper clarity uh, about themselves, about life, the world around them, other people. And and people differ in this way. In Some individuals report a memory, an important memory, in a very descriptive manner. They don't talk about the, the meaning that is below the written word or the spoken word. Other people who score high on this meaning-making variable really obviously present to you the lessons and insights that they have learned. So um, now meaning-making, of course, is measured as both process and outcome. So we're looking in their narratives for the actual lessons that they've learned, but also indications that they're in a meaning-making process. Mm. So that might be references to self-reflection or reflection in general. Um, In the moment, actually, in telling the narrative, they may be overtly considering different possible meanings. So we see both process and outcome in that. I I just want a little quote from your paper, Nick, which I thought was really interesting because I was reading the paper and it was uh, like, it's essentially, it felt like a story to me in which there was a, I th- it sounded like it was moving towards a happy ending. It was like, and now here we are in the 21st century and there's less intolerance than there might have been in the past. And I was thinking, yeah, this is a great story. And then then there was this little line that you said at the end. It says, um, what significance will the transition from having a revolutionary identity to being just like everybody else hold for gay people? And I was like, oh, whoa, I had, that's a real sort of interesting twist to what sounds like a success story you know in a way people are denied this uh ready-made identity and that has interesting consequences which had never occurred to me before and what is exposed in that statement is that there are potential for intergenerational tensions as well and that is what intrigues me so much is that okay if you know members of the same community Um, if their identities are so different, and maybe even resisting one another. So there's this idea that in this new, quote unquote, post-gay era, that those stories are are not, not only not relevant to us, but also constraining in a way, because society may have um, certain meaning associated with that form or way of being gay, that sort of revolutionary, radical, activist-oriented way of practicing one's sexual identity. So there can be resistance within one community, which I think is really, really fascinating. Zooming out a little bit, this intergenerational dynamic is quite interesting to me because it sounds like when you have someone from a... uh, where you have a a cross-generational chat or important conversation um, or storytelling, the, the... the two parties are getting something quite different from it. So exactly, what's going on there? Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. You know, what is the older person doing? Mm-hmm. Why are they doing it? And what's the, why is the younger person listening? You know, what, what's going on? What are they trying to get from this interaction? For sure. I mean, it, it, one, one question is, even before we even go into the impact it has on each, each of the members of that sort of storytelling exchange is, how often is this even happening in the real right, world right. or in the natural world? So that's we have to start by asking really basic questions about when is this happening in the, in the natural world? And then, of course, we're going to observe it in the lab and just watch dyads exchange stories with one another. And, and there's lots of really interesting things we can do with that. But what's happening, I think, 
my, my speculation is that older um, gay people um, have an opportunity when telling a story about a historical event like the Stonewall Inn to express their concern for the future generation. In in developmental psychology, we talk about this concept of generativity, uh, not just in developmental psychology, in, all, in many fields of psychology, there's this concept of generativity that um, is essentially a concern that emerges around midlife for um, future generations. So an, an older gay person may tell a story and and infuse into it lessons and insights which we may consider to be wise and in doing that they've satisfied that need or that motivation to show concern for the future generation Mm -hmm. that opportunity to tell the story may also be um, a chance for them to reflect on their own identity identity development doesn't just happen of course in adolescence or emerging adulthood which is when it's most active but older people in later years can also be, um, you know, playing with their identity, developing their identity in that way. And for those, for those older folks who are especially close to the end of their life, this opportunity might provide them with a sense of integrity or a sense of wholeness and harmony when they look back on their life, that they're able to make these, to make these offerings to the younger generation, that they're able to understand that their turmoil and their strife has had a purpose and an end in sharing this wisdom with younger individuals. Yeah, it's interesting. It kind of makes me think we were, uh, Igor and I were chatting a few episodes back about death and, mm-hmm. you know, ways people face death and the ways they kind of seek immortality and it kind of generativity has that quality to it that, you know, I'm going to die with these lessons unless, you know, and, but if I can pass them on, then uh, in a way I survive beyond my death, you know, um, that's again sounds like a kind of cynical interpretation of what it what on the surface seems like a uh, an honourable um, motivation. But do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, I mean, I don't. I, yeah, in a way, it's funny that you say it sounds cynical. I mean, in a way, it sounds just normal and natural too. You know, the idea that people would would be concerned about you know living on afterwards, especially when living on isn't this very self centered thing. It's not. There's going to be, you know, and people aren't going to remember me necessarily for my accomplishments or how much money I made or whatever. They're going to, the way I'm going to live on in other people is through helping them to live better lives. Um, In the research, actually, that we were talking about earlier about collected stories, these stories that are not even um, part of our direct experience, but somehow are then internalized into our sense of selves, one of the conditions for a story to ultimately be internalized or valued by an audience is a resonance. Okay, so the advice that's being told needs to somehow resonate with the listener. And that resonance, I guess, could be in the form of, ah, this makes sense. I This has led to greater clarity on myself or my situation. Or likewise, I might have the reaction, okay, that is ludicrous. What outrageous advice, right? And yeah. that, in the same way, resonates, or rather in a different way, but there's still resonance. And then it's the role of the younger person in this case to um, construct a lesson or an insight to take away from that. Mm-hmm. So even in these intergenerational exchanges, in some of the grandchildren that I've looked at in my research, some of the grandchildren don't even think that their grandparent was trying to teach them a lesson, but still walked away with one. So I think that what's really interesting is to ask questions about the internalization process. Under what conditions do young people think that advice 
is worth taking? And then how is that integrated into their actual practices of living? This is actually very interesting. It's almost like a perfect transition uh, to uh, the mechanisms, uh, which is what I'm passionate about, the psychology of uh, what's underneath uh, uh, in our minds uh, that is driving this transmission of uh, wisdom, transmission of narratives, transmission of advice uh, from one generation to the next. So, Nick, you worked on that uh, more recently and have published some of the most interesting papers, I would say, on this topic so far. Really groundbreaking work. Um, and um, I would really like you to tell us a little bit more about it. So, you, you uh, to, to give our uh, listeners uh, a little bit of an overview, Nick has worked on this idea of self-reflection and how people reflect on their past narratives. And uh, he has identified several types of several ways how people reflect that have some um, really interesting and somewhat different consequences. So, Nick, I'll pass it to you, and maybe you can tell us a little bit more about this work. Okay, I'd be happy to. Uh, so this is, this is yeah, work that I've been doing um, within the context of my PhD studies, and more recently, I have a few publications now on this topic, and basically I've been taken by this uh, let me start at the beginning, like you know, any good story does. Um, I, right. As I give us the narrative, world, yeah. I will give you the narrative. Just you wait. You're the hero uh, in this story. There will be a lesson at the end, and you must <laughs> abide by it. No. Yeah. Um, so, basically, when I entered the world of wisdom research, I was taken by this idea that um, we develop wisdom through life experience. Anyone you ask about the development of wisdom in their in their list, their, in the first three things that they say life experience is going to be one of them. But of course, many of us have life experience. Many of us are not wise. There has to be some sort of um, mechanism that sits between wisdom and life experience that explains why some people become wise following, say, for example, hardship, and others become bitter Mm. or some other developmental end, maybe happiness. And of course, we could debate whether or not you can be bitter and wise at the same time, but let's imagine you can't, and for the sake of argument, and that there's some predictor that's putting people on this wisdom path and others that are putting another predictor that's putting them on this bitter embitterment path or something like that. Mm-hmm. So I was interested in that um, those mechanisms. And what I came to, of course, was self-reflection. So the question then being, how do wise people reflect on their life in their memories? So what I do is I collect people's autobiographical memories. Can I see differences um, between the way a wise person narrates a life experience and a relatively unwise person? And of course, this isn't just qualitative work. We, we, we may begin in a qualitative modality where we're looking at the memories to identify differences, but ultimately we develop a coding scheme of some kind. We have multiple people who are trained to score narratives using that coding scheme, actually score the narratives, and then look for agreement across those narratives. So what and then and then that's how we then predict levels of wisdom from some sort of a processing mode. What do they do they score them for like different styles of processing or so what we did was um we were interested primarily in two different types of self-reflective processing and i'll just call those processing modes different ways of making sense of your past experience and the first one is um, exploratory processing and i'll contrast this in a moment with another process called redemptive processing and these are uncorrelated which means that they're not happening in the same space 
often. So if you are an exploratory processor, you're possibly not and or not necessarily a redemptive processor as well. And as it turns out, only one of these processing modes actually is correlated with wisdom. So people who are exploratory processors, they are doing some of the things we've talked about earlier, and that is reflecting deeply on their life experience. They're looking at they're looking for deeper meaning. They're trying to extract lessons and insights that might be useful in their own life later on. They're really considering multiple possibilities. They're taking multiple perspectives on a situation. So they're looking at an event from their perspective, the perspective of someone else. And this highly reflective process often then ends up with, in the end, some sort of an insight gained about life that represents a more accurate, realistic, and complex understanding of um, the human condition, basically. You mentioned there was this exploratory processing approach, um, and then there was this other approach. So maybe tell us about that, and and why, if it's not leading to wisdom, why would anyone do it? So what is this other approach? Well, why, why other people would use that approach is because it may not lead to wisdom, but it may lead to happiness. So um, these are both positive outcomes, but they're different outcomes. Uh, so the, the second processing mode we've called redemptive processing. Okay. And an individual who is engaging in this type of self-reflection has taken, we'll say, a difficult life event. And rather than looking into analyzing that event for deeper meaning necessarily, what they're doing is they're presenting the event to us, they're describing the event, and they're really focusing on the emotional experience. Mm-hmm. They're taking a negative event and telling us that it's now very positive, that they've somehow find a, found a way to transform this initially negative event to something positive over the long term. Huh. And through that process, they've gained a sense of resolution or emotional closure. So another way to think about redemptive processing is like a happy ending. Right. And as it turns out, these this te- tends to, in a way, be antithetical to exploratory processing. If you're aimed fully at just emotional transformation and closure, you're precluding the chance that you can interrogate it for deeper meaning. Mm. So how can those things happen together? Well, I mean, of course, we can imagine a scenario where they do happen. Maybe someone first engages in a high level of exploratory processing. They go through that really difficult process of exploring their negative emotions, of looking at the role that they might have played in a very difficult life event, which is really quite hard. And then eventually, and not too quickly, they are able to see that it's positive and feel a sense of resolution. Mm -hmm. So maybe that combination of processing modes is the best i'm not sure Mm. Uh, i'm hesitant to say that one is better than the other they're just different but what i've seen in my research where i don't look at it over time i just look at it at one time what i see is that these two processes are not correlated with one another you could could imagine it's sort of looping around on itself i i sounds i seem to remember ursula stoudinger saying something along these lines you know that you could have one approach and then that helps you through a certain period and then you might adopt the other, you know, you learn the lessons through looking at it clear-eyed, then you move to finding a resolution, or not necessarily resolution, but sort of uh, topping up your emotional resources 
so you can then dive back in, learn some more lessons, you know, kind of going around yeah. the loop. Yeah. Ursula Staudinger did talk about that. She talked about the idea that a certain level of adjustment is necessary in order to take the psychological risk of right, doing right. Um, a growth-oriented process yeah. like exploratory processing. So absolutely. And um, to, to just to connect it back to actually this concept of adjustment, what we found was that whereas exploratory processing predicted wisdom, redemptive processing predicted adjustment. So people who were redeeming, they tended to be happier. Um, but so that's really interesting because uh, I'd just like to go back to what Charles just said. If there is uh, some kind of a temporal dynamic going on between this process, when you capture people in a particular moment and bring them uh, into your laboratory to interview them on these topics, you may be capturing different stages of where they are by looking at, like, if you see that, identify that some of them are more exploratory. There, of course, they are maybe earlier in their working through the experiences. And um, when they are more redemptive-oriented, maybe they are um, uh, trying to get closure, or maybe they are just at the beginning and they don't even know, like, how to deal with this difficult issue. So have you looked at the temporal resolution? How much... Uh, how far back are these experiences uh, for these different uh, groups of people that they are reflecting, that they're choosing to reflect on? Yeah, so this is an issue that we need to be very careful about as researchers. And we, we all wish we could do longitudinal research, right, which is to, you know, study people over time and take into account for these developmental dynamics. Mm. That's, that's the ideal case scenario. When we can't do that and we just take uh, a snapshot of someone at one given time is we ask for information like, when did the event occur? And then you can control for that in your analyses or see if that's psychologically relevant in some way. What What we typically see is that when I ask questions about important life events from midlife adults, they tend to report things that happen in earlier stages of their life. So there has been a period of time mm. where they've undergone this this you know processing phase. Um, the other thing that I do is I typically ask participants not to report events that have happened in the past year, mm-hmm. or you could you could make that a longer time frame if you wanted, because you don't you know in order to sort of standardize where participants are are I guess coming into the study at. You, you don't want one person, as you said, Igor, already in fully in a processing mode and another in a more resolved state, right. because then you can't really compare them at all. Yeah. Uh, so that's a challenge mm. with this research. Your, so a big headline seems to be exploratory processing is, is definitely something you want to know, you want to have a facility for if you're interested in becoming wiser. So as we're kind of getting towards, I know, Eagles, um, time-wise, time we're against the clock, aren't we? But people are going to want to know, I really like this idea of exploratory processing. Can I become an exploratory processor or is it just you are, you are or you aren't? You know, is it something mm-hmm. you can learn like playing tennis or, you know, or is it, you know, if that's not in your nature, that's just not the way you can't. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would ask another question even before we get that, get to the question of can I become one? I mean, the first question really is, do you want to become one? <laughs> and yeah, right. you know like i'm not i'm i'm not like we're talking about two positive pathways of development right and at one at one end we see people who are wiser and at the other end we see people who are better adjusted so who am i to say 
that someone should be engaging in an exploratory manner with their life experience when that may actually jeopardize their well-being, certainly in the short term, maybe not over long term. I actually think that exploratory processing in the long term is quite functional from an adjustment and well-being perspective. But I'm trying not to be very prescriptive about which model of self-reflection is the best. Personally, with that said, so I want to, I just want to acknowledge that, that both of these have positive benefits Mm -hmm. or consequences in my mind. Um, at the same time, I'm, I'm torn because I do think that exploration is really important and having a strong sense of identity, self-clarity, and in that process, also acquiring wisdom along the way is really important. So maybe like one way to think about it is, uh, you know, like for millennia, there has been this uh, debate in philosophy about the role of affect and emotion for uh, your judgments, for how your morals work, how, how you should be evaluating situations in terms of their moral virtues. Some people say you should like rationalists, that you should be just rejecting those others, that you should be integrating them and consider morality based on your intuitive, intuitionist uh, responses. Um, why I'm saying that, well, it seems to me that, you know, like adjustment is about uh, the consequence of that, at least those that you have shown, Nick, about regulating your emotions and uh, will be adjusted in terms of maybe your goals and your emotional responses. Whereas exploration uh, seems to be a predominantly cognitive process. You seek more information. You try to integrate it. And to me, those two seem to be like this yin and yang of of the constant uh, exchange. You can't really tease them apart. But of course, in our everyday life, we have both the emotional responses that we constantly regulate one way or another, and some of us are better at that than others. So it's about doing this kind of redemptive processing on a constant basis. And at the same time, we do encounter new situations. We need to be flexible. That's sort of our evolutionary task to adapt to different environments. That's what made humans so special uh, in the sense of like being so successful in adapting to different um, uh, ecologies and so on and so forth. So to me, it seems to me that those both processes obviously are part of this kind of holistic view of what we probably would think wisdom is about. And hence you have across different cultural histories, perspectives on wisdom that talk more about emotions or talk more about uh, this cognition and seeking inquiring more information exploring the world so but it's a complex topic mm-hmm. and certainly more research is needed i think uh, we are uh, uh, close to the end right charles so yeah. um, i would suggest uh, go ahead i was gonna you do you want to kind of give a little overview of what's happened yeah, I think uh, it would be great for listeners uh, to have a little bit of a summary of we discussed a, a large uh, a number of topics. And Nick, you can interrupt me at any time and maybe provide your additional input at the end of uh, if I miss something. But here, let me try uh, uh, take a step here. So first, we talked about the societal and collective narratives. We talked about cultural stories, which often contain lessons that can be passed down to younger generations as a means of teaching them about life. And these narratives can be either internalized or they can be resisted by members of a group uh, as these members try to figure out who they are 
And hence, they're important uh, one way or another for identifying yourself and figuring out who one is. We also talked about the intergenerational storytelling, so that uh, these narratives are used for intergenerational storytelling. And uh, the intergenerational storytelling is the process of sharing uh, information, typically uh, information about real-life events, Uh, between members of two or more generations, and it has been shown to have very positive effects, uh, both for well-being or, or relationship harmony, but can also be used as a tool to transmit wisdom and express this idea of generativity, this caring and trying to help the next generation. Then we moved into the more cognitive processing uh, and the more uh, underlying, under-the-hood mechanisms. We talked about the meaning-making. It's a highly reflective process that involves a conscious search for lessons and insights in lives uh, that experience, in lived experiences. Um, and such meaning may be related to one sense of self. It can be related to the world around them and the people in it or to life in general, for often, at least in our individualist cultures, it is about the self. And then we focus on the particular processes when people uh, reflect on their experiences. One of them is the exploration. Try to seek more information, try to integrate and get greater sense of meaning from this past experience. Another way to self-reflect is uh, involves this redemptive process, which is aimed at transforming negative emotions to positive and finding some emotional closure uh, without uh, analyzing uh, the meaning of the experience. And it is typically helping one to work through emotions this reflective uh, de- uh, redemption uh, form of reflection without changing the meaning of the situation. Now, learning about this different process, uh, uh, this different processing modes of your past experience, such as ex- exploration and redemption, can help us to develop some kind of meta-awareness about our uh, self-reflective tendencies and help us to maybe generate better stories for other generations to come. Now, Nick, did I miss anything? Or is the, does that sort of capture? That was good. We haven't done that before. I liked it. Nice. <laughs> that was a really great summary. Thank you for taking all of the random things I said and putting it into such a beautifully coherent uh, summary. Beautiful. We can just cut to, cut to that next time if we're low on time. We're just, you know, we're exactly. just stuck. Eagle's going to basically talk for uh, three minutes, cover everything that we're going to waffle on for about an hour. That was good. <laughs> it's kind of a trick, isn't it, that you make people wait to the very end to hear this three minute summary. <laughs> Oh, well. For those commuters who are very busy, that will be... That's right, that's right. Yeah, next time is just going to skip to minute 57. A time is the <laughs> premium. Well, yeah. um, are there any uh, takeaways here in addition to the summary, Charles, Nick? I have one thought, which is just that it's become apparent through the conversation how how much we are living our life through stories. You know, the way we present ourselves, the way we entertain ourselves, it's kind of everything's a story and stories i'm really getting the sense from this dialogue uh trialogue well, i don't know what a, a dialogue <laughs> with three people is um discussion the, discussion the stories that are everywhere they're not about facts they're about so many other things so i think in my own life like what i'm kind of going to be taking away is i'm going to be trying to when i listen to st- people's stories and and i tell stories i'm going to be thinking about what's really going on here and not get so caught up in the details, whether it's like the St. Louis thing or the details of did Stonewall really start the gay liberation movement? But why is this story being told? Not in a cynical way, but just 
so you don't get distracted you know what is the purpose of this story and i think that's going to be really helpful for me you know so asking myself why are these people and why am i telling this story what's what's real what's the real motivation there and i hope that feels like it will be really helpful and i and i would add that even before you get like you're talking about what, how you're going to process a story that's being told to you mm. but i'm kind of worried that people aren't taking the time to find opportunities to hear these stories to begin with. You know, so before you, you know, before you start thinking, I mean, in addition to thinking about how you're going to engage with these stories, I think we all need to take a moment to think about how often we take time to listen to other people and ask them about their experiences. Mm -hmm. And especially within an intergenerational context. In, in today's world, we're all so busy, right? I don't, you know, we may not feel like we have time to sit down and listen to a story, especially when it's coming from someone who's maybe a slow storyteller, or, you know, maybe the purpose of that exchange is just to tell stories. That, I guess, is my point, is that it is an end in itself as well. And I mean, this has made very salient for me recently, because this is a personal disclosure, but last week, I lost one of my grandfathers. And he um, he told great stories, but I don't think I created an, enough um, occasions for him to express the lessons and insights that he wanted to to me. And um, and he didn't always do that in words as well. Mm. Many of the times it was in actions, but maybe there were stories there. And I just the the final point is that. The stories don't stick around forever. Mm. You know, my grandfather, he's gone now. And the stories are going to live on in the conversations I have with my cousins and my mother and so on. But when I think about Stonewall and um, the, the gay cultural heritage that I'm a part of, those folks are going to be gone, much like the survivors of the Holocaust are leaving us now too. So there is a time limit to this. Mm. Some of these stories we need to find opportunities to hear today. So this is this is these are the, the the thoughts I have at the end of a conversation like this, and I'm filled with a sense of urgency about it. I think it's important, and that's what my research will uncover. But I think in the meantime, we need to collect the stories. Yeah. So for our listeners, stop eating and watching Netflix with your partner. Talk to your partner. Talk to your friends at dinner. Don't spend time just like chewing and watching another series that uh, seem to be presented to you on a screen. Or even better, after you watch that show, which actually is a story, talk about it. <laughs> right. That's right? right. That's right. So it's not about, re yeah. you know, don't replace one with the other. But when you, when you, like Netflix is a storytelling technology, but you need to, under I think we need to understand that limited types of stories are being told on a medium like that and yeah. maybe the more interesting stories are the ones that aren't being told and then we need to find them right that's 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 on us right and sitting on a couch isn't going to help you <laughs> yeah this was an amazing conversation yeah thank you so much nick this was wonderful thank you so much for joining us today uh for finding the time uh for telling your story multiple stories and uh to make us a bit wiser in uh, our crazy world that we live in today this this um podcast i guess igor is uh some sort of story we're working through ourselves as well so it seems i'm just seeing stories everywhere now nick you've got, <laughs> got some new 
glasses which are made of stories which everything everything's becoming a story and thank you everyone for listening rate us on itunes if you uh, are finding this valuable or if you're not just email us and don't rate us um and um thanks again nick thank you very much for joining us today 